Welcome to Mom is the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. For this episode of our Criticism in Conversation series, a writer and collaborative performer, Jacob Wren, speaks with artist Dana Danger about the line between empowerment and objectification and the meaning of community in both of their work. Dana is a two-spirit Métis Soto Polish artist whose images highlight and queer power dynamics, kinship, representation, and sexuality. Jacob makes collaborative performances, exhibitions, and literature, including 2014's Polyamorous Love Song and this year's Authenticity is a Feeling, a hybrid of history, performance theory, and memoir. Jacob and Dana cover a lot of ground, from personal narratives and community relationships to speaking out against silence and apathy. What we also get from their conversation is a set of strategies for working and living in a capitalist and colonial society, including creating your own rituals and adopting an ethics of abundance. at a work by the artist Dana Danger, I often feel I'm seeing not just the work in front of me, but also that I'm sensing a whole world of connection and mutual relations that lie behind the work. A world of friendship, a world of queer and feminist friendship, a world of indigenous kinship that goes back in time, and a world of two-spirit kinship that is especially alive today a world of kink and BDSM that is transformed through the lens of danger's indigenous lived experience. And perhaps a few other worlds I'm not thinking about at the moment. These are all things I of course have no direct lived experience of, and I'm not exactly experiencing them through this art, but I am having a direct artistic experience that draws on many aspects I actually know little about. I think of these kinds of experiences, both direct and indirect, as being especially valuable within art, as a kind of learning that goes beyond learning. And also, this is only one of the many reasons that Danger's work hits me with such a strange and persistent force. Dana Danger I'm Dana Danger and I'm a visual artist and activist. So I'd like to start by uh, telling you about an experience I had with your work that um, moved me a great deal. Uh, it was at the Leonard and Bina Ellen Gallery as part of the Sovereign Acts 2 exhibition. And it was at a talk by Lindsay Nixon and she was talking about the exhibition as a whole. Near the end of the talk, or maybe during the questions, uh, she was standing kind of beside your work and had been talking about your work, maybe from a more critical distance. And then she turned to it and said that one of the figures in the beaded masks was her. Mm -hmm. And it was this very striking moment that I think, correct me if I'm wrong, has a lot to do with what your work is about, that uh, it's a community of people and the people who Uh, have a critical perspective on uh, their situation, are also in the work and outside of the work and in dialogue with you and in dialogue with uh, others trying to explain the work. And I I thought this was kind of a very beautiful moment that brought a lot of uh, things that you do together. 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like interlaced things that happens uh, in the community that I surround myself in, for sure. That's a very intentional thing that I do. So, yeah. Oh, just in for the record, our Lindsay goes by uh, they, non-binary pronouns. Um, and I do as well. I usually, like, that's what I do. But um, I always wonder what it would be like for somebody that, like, maybe is uh, talking about the work and then is also in it, you know, to kind of, like, turn around and there's, like, a giant form of themselves, you know. And, and it was interesting, too, because that work is very personal. I bead these uh, fetish masks, just completely beaded with these black uh, matte beads and shiny black beads. And they're beaded specifically for people um, they usually have their tattoos on the masks as well. Uh, they take over 100 hours to bead. Uh, I often reach out to different community members that I know are good beaders. <laughs> and so I reach out to them and I ask them for their help and I pay them to help me bead these masks. Usually that is denoted somewhere. I'm not sure if that happened in that show. And that's something that I try to be more conscious of. At least the names of the people who put labor into the work are also there because they're part of it. Yeah, some of them are my friends. Some of them are just people that I know that are really good at that. And it's just like how we funnel in funds to our community or just like help folks out. One friend was able to fly back home to her community because of being able to bead with that. And, and so it's kind of like that reciprocity that kind of exists within our communities. Up to this date, I don't really apply for grants and stuff like that it's all self-funded so it's a lot of it's a lot I have a lot of stake in these but that also gives me a lot of uh, control over the content and who's involved and I just like love how unique all of them are you know one has a dagger one has a double battle axe it's like the ones that I have but my friend just like went out and got a similar one but more afrocentric and it was just like great because it's like these symbols, they have such a history. The double battle axe is the labrys, which is from Greek mythology. But then it's very much like lesbian dyke culture symbol. Like you see the labrys um, little necklaces or tattoos, and that usually is like a little signifier. And then I think about now how that is interpreted as like indigenous feminism and like the bonds that I've shared with other uh, indigenous folks. Yeah, but I feel you feel that life in the work. You feel that there's a lot of things underneath the surface and a lot of a story that led up to it. And mm. and, and there is a sense of community in it. But uh, And then I was also thinking about uh, the mask is something that conceals, but also people are wearing similar masks. So there's a, a connection between them. Yeah. And you don't know exactly who they are, but you know there's a lot going on. Totally. And then, yeah, being able to go to Toronto and show at um, critical uh, distance at our, our Space Young place, they have this big billboard where Candace had her, her mask displayed like eight feet by eight feet. It was massive. It was cool because uh, I feel like people would tell me that when the kids would walk by or stuff like that, they'd get really excited. Like they saw like a superhero or a luchador, which is totally correct. They're actually the first ones were kind of uh, made from a luchador mask that I had bought in Banff. And it just like felt like a thing that I needed to have. There is all those connections there. And it was like great to hear like stories of people actually being there and like hearing kids get really excited about it versus they barely got to me because they kind of shut it down right away. But there was apparently a guy that was complaining to the city that he was worried for the children. But the children are okay. Like, they're going to figure it out. They don't necessarily see those uh, BDSM references. And that's fine. Like, they don't need to. There's something about the masks that really, 
I think it's also like, yeah, what you were talking about, that, that kind of, kind of you can seal, but it's like the visibility versus what we don't want to show. And that's definitely at play with those works. And they've actually never been played in yet. The intention is to send them back to the people that I beat them for. And then that's, then I just like request it whenever. That's a whole other sort of thing that I'm really challenging in my practice too, is like what we have ownership over or thinking about how my ancestors would have gifted things and things that were like beautiful. And, you know, there was that kind of like wanting to keep it all to yourself. And I, I understand as artists, like, you know, that um, our objects will for me, their belongings. Like you don't want to necessarily just give it all away because then what do you have to show or but like my intention was never to sell them or that's not the story that was happening with those yeah that's quite a beautiful idea giving them back to the people who they were for and mm-hmm. and I feel like kind of yeah a lot of community in that work and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see community what that word means to you or if there are other words you prefer I know, right? I think that's the big one that we're all trying to unpack right now because, like, say here in Montreal, like, I think when I hear the words like queer community, I'm thinking specifically of, like, the Anglo queer community, right? Because those, I noticed here especially that they're very divided. There is some crossover, but it's very different. And the sort of, like, things that those respective communities are dealing with are very different, you know, in terms of, like, language and, like, where we're at. I feel like sometimes when I go to the rest of so-called Canada, there's, like, different conversations that are happening that are, like, that seem, like, it seems really behind here is what I'll say. I feel like it's in the Indigenous art world, in the queer art world, and and then ge- the general, I feel like folks are really holding on. They're really holding on to like a lot of victimhood of over what the English have done, you know, while not really recognizing how they're implicit in, in, that, in that oppression of folks who have already been here for some time. And I think that like it really happens in so-called communities, because what does that really mean? You know, we can say this word and we all like ex- exist in different communities. Some of them intersect because we're in the art community together, but then we have our little bubbles that we're probably circulating within because that's where it feels comfortable for us. And those are the dialogues that we want to be having. And and then how we unpack that, like who's being left out or it's not even who's being left out. It's also like who doesn't want to come to those spaces and like how can we really open that up or do we want to open that up? If we open things up, there's like that fear, that fear of the unknown of like how when we let those spaces open, like are we going to be treated the ways that we want to be treated? And like why do we build those little bubbles of communities, you know? I often feel like that sometimes when I go out into like the real world or whatever (laughs) and all of a sudden I'm like oh my god all these like sexist misogynist things are being hurled at me you know like I'm just like what like it's just it's so ingrained in some of the language in different communities that we're just like it feels like okay this is why we build this stuff but it's also there's yeah it's the push and pull of like that isolation within those communities of like wanting to come out it's like kind of how I see the masks too of like what are we trying to protect and then what are we trying to show you because I think for a lot of communities, like too, like especially in the indigenous communities, there sometimes tends to be a bit of scarcity about wanting to share. Um, but historically, that makes a lot of sense. When things were banned, when people had to bury their bundles, when they like had to, their practices had to go underground, essentially. Otherwise, you know, they could face jail time or they could be penalized, you know, for something that somebody didn't understand. And now it like, and now people are just like, well, why don't you want to share everything? And it's like, yeah, I get why you like, there's that kind of work you have to do 
with elders. You really have to like spend time and put the work in. You can't just like show up at the door and be like, well, I'm indigenous and like, I don't know any of this stuff. And they're like, okay, so what, <laughs> you know? What is that commitment that you're willing to make to the community, right? You know, it kind of susses out whether or not you're there for the teachings or the, the, that kind of modification that can happen when something's given to you and then you start to share it. But like, how are you sharing it? What is the intention? So it operates very differently, like say, than the queer community, right? Because there is like a lot of history also that I think a lot of people don't know about. I was involved in a leather show and was talking about all the different leather bars that used to exist in Montreal as a part of like decolonizing leather community and looking at like what folks aren't let into those spaces. Because I don't necessarily feel very safe to go into certain BDSM kink communities myself because they are very very white, they were very, they're very white, like period. And so then, you know, when stuff like race play or, or that sort of stuff comes into power dynamics, it's a very real experience. Um, uh, BIPOC, POC, black folks, indigenous folks, whoever wants to enter into those spaces, that kind of community, they have to be really, well, they want to be safe. They want to feel safe to do that. And often they, they don't, cause they're just like, this mimics so much of the real world. Um, I think that's the beautiful thing about BDSM is it can really challenge that. Uh, for a while, I was very fascinated by secret societies. Yeah. And there's something about keeping community like secret or small as a way of like kind of building resistance in a kind of protected uh, way. And maybe this idea that, um, well, you can have more trust and like, let's say, in resistance in a small cell yeah. where uh, you're not so open to you know, other people coming in and taking it in directions you don't want it to go. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one thing that fascinates me, these kind of like secret societies or small groups. And there's a real power in that. And then also, I'm always asking myself, how do you get larger change and how do you change people's minds, uh, which is maybe the opposite impulse, but, but I think they're connected. Mm -hmm. And I keep thinking like, all through my life, I've had these experiences where somebody said something to me and it was like, it's usually like something I already knew in a way, but they worded it differently or they put it in a story and suddenly I understood something I hadn't understood before and, and I mm -hmm. understood it in a way where I'm like, okay, I just can't keep living the same way. I can't keep doing the same thing. I understand this now. I have to change. Yeah. This is maybe my biggest question. I don't know if you can learn how to do that or if those things are like moments of grace that happen or, I mean, I think it's probably somewhere in between. Yeah, I think that's like the biggest thing right now with the political climate that's happening and just like the ways in which we, tr you know, try to understand that like people that are being affected in a very violent sort of way that we see, we're starting to see history repeat itself. And a lot of people are just saying, no, not my America. No, not my Canada. And it's like, this was never yours, first of all. But I think it's like when we realize that what we've been taught is only one piece, it's only one piece of a pie. Like really, that there is so much other stuff that is missing from that conversation. Like a lot of us have been in those points of like when we start to unravel what has been taught to us and really start to question and I really resonate with that thing that you say, like when somebody explains it to you in such a way that you're just like, it just is that moment. But I just like don't know if everybody gets there. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? My, bless her heart, my great-grandmother is like 97. And every time I have to go home to see her, she always asks me about my boyfriend. And I have to come out to her time and time again. I can't quite broach the subject of non-binary and all that sort of stuff quite yet. It's just too, it's really like far out there, you know, for her. But I'm not going to stop trying. I'm going to keep having those moments. The fact of the matter is, is like when those moments come up is to say something, whether it's anger or whether it is um, compassion, they're all valid. And some people may shut down if it's anger, but then there are some people that are just so apathetic, the compassion, the empathy thing just doesn't exist. You know, they're not quite there yet, but it's like, we don't say, if we're just silent, period. It hasn't changed anything. It just like, it's like status quo, it just continues. Just, you know, even asking, I find that I ask questions. And I'm just like, what did you mean when you, when you said that? And you're like, you know, or like if I see some, if I see <laughs> recently, like somebody like, was like just saying some lyrics from Wu-Tang song. It's like this white dude and he said the N-word and stuff. And I was like, it's 2018 already. Like what, like why? Like, why do you, why you gotta say that? I sort of want to believe that for anyone, there is something you can say to them that will maybe not change their perspective as much as you want to change their perspective, but you know, be like some sand in the gears or have some shift in how they see things or question things. I mean, in, in believing that, it gives you like the, kind of the energy to keep trying. The, the burnout is super real. Um, that's why I keep making the work that I, that I do. I'm not here to represent all two-spirit people. We are vastly different as well as like any tribe, nation, like whatever you want to call it. We are all very, very different. And these kind of like pan-indigenous ideas, you know, like two-spirit was created because we needed a word in English to describe, you know, but a lot of us have these words in our languages. Um, and some of us want to share it and some of us don't because it's like between, you know, it can be between us or it can get to that place because the part of it is like, I would feel sad if the word that I used to describe myself was then used to apply to say somebody from the West Coast or somebody from South America or it's not like this all encompassing word to like, like language is super important and complex and I know why we need it at the same times it can be so limiting and like really box things in or erase things completely. Like when we don't even have language to describe our experiences or just like our complete erasure. In many different nations, the erasure of two-spirit people is super real. And that they say that like, you know, queer identity is like a colonial thing and stuff. And that happens a lot, but we've been here. We've been doing this. The multitudes of gender presentations within different nations is like a real thing. But you know, when you're trying to survive, when you're forced to like take this very binary way of thinking, there's so much that is lost. You know, you just don't want to like give up. I don't really, you know, I think deep down inside, even for those who have assimilated, who are Christianized, who are all these things, I think that there's still something inside of them that wants to keep going despite all of that, you know? When my great grandmother, who's super Christianized, like I just get her talking about how she used to, how she lived like on, in Cold Lake and it just, the language comes back immediately. Like she starts talking to me about how, what her dad would say to her, you know, Kiwetin is a street in Manitoba, but it means the North Wind. So when you would go out fishing, you know, he's like, oh, there's a Kiwetin coming in, which means like there's a North Wind coming in. So they're not gonna spend as much time out there. These little things, you know, this is a street that I like would bike around in my neighborhood forever. And then I start to realize that there's lots of 
streets and stuff that have been named after our languages. And it's just like that aha moment, like listening to Lee Miracle, like talk about Spadina, which was actually Spadina. And it just means something completely different. But those like moments where you're just like, actually like we're everything. It's like that the idea of relation and how we are literally connected to everything. And it seems like this like new age thing, but I'm like, no, it was before new age. New age is like ripping on that. Like it's, yeah, it's the relation is your tree. The relation is your animal. And it's like all these sort of things like we are, if we do something to that, it will affect us, right? And so there's like that disconnect that sometimes happens, you know? Can you talk a little bit about what Two-Spirit means to you and, and how you use it? Absolutely. Two-Spirit for me is like, I mean, I'm from so-called Winnipeg, Manitoba and Two-Spirit, the Two-Spirit Foundation, uh, Two-Spirit Manitoba, I think it's called, or was started by Albert McLeod and... Uh, it's just like nice to know that that's like where a lot of like folks that were coming together that were making that space for folks to exist. Two-spirit for me is just like, I know that I'm a queer individual or that my sexuality is like not, uh, is not the mainstream, whatever that's supposed to, whatever that's supposed to mean. I mean, I'm only positioning it against a society that very much erases or tells me that I like, you know, I mean, yes, we have pride, like there's pride and all this sort of stuff that says like love is love. And like, what does that actually mean? But for me as, a, as an indigenous individual who exists like that, it is, it is different because it is the way that we relate to the land and our kinships and, and that we're just trying to remember um, all of our like, queer, two-spirit, indigenous, like ancestors and like what they would have went through and how they were so integral to our societies and like how we raised our children together or like all of those things, the roles that we would have taken on um, that weren't gendered, like all this sort of stuff. Like gendering in languages is something even super new to like Anishinaabe Moen or stuff like that where, yeah, we have like Ikwe for sure, which means woman, but like you would never say Anishinaabe Ikwe like back in the day. This is what I've been told is like there was you weren't saying like that's an, a native woman like it was just that was just you but we did have words for people that like took on different roles or stuff like that so it's like for me it's just it's like an umbrella and there's like many different ways in which like there are some indigenous people that are queer that do not identify as two-spirit you know this is like a new term from like the 90s when uh i think it's my myra lamir dreamt had this dream and the dream in itself wasn't inherently gendered or that, but she, there was like two faces that came to her that were very different. And so I think that it's like, and I'm just, because it's not my dream or story to tell, that's why I'm like a very, I'm doing the Coles Notes version of it. Once again, trying to protect that history in some ways too, because there was like way more when she told it, oh my God. And she usually never tells this publicly. So it was like that special moment with like two spirit and uh, black queer community individuals coming together to like a call to conversation between each other. This happened, uh, I think about a year ago. And just to hear those stories, to be like, oh, this is, this is the history. This is where it comes from. And it can come from us. It doesn't have to come from like something so traditional, so far back that we, you know, we can't grasp it. Cause that's, that, that's like eight or seven generations, like before me even. And we create ritual, we create our stories. You know, so that was like a really big changing thing for me in the ways that I, in which I see myself, the way in which I identify. It doesn't always have to come from the past. It can also come from right now because we are contemporary people. That's really yeah. interesting to me, like being part of a tradition, but recreating it in the present or in the moment. Yeah. Because it has to exist now. It can't exist in the past. 
you can't really go back. Like it's, I think it's nice in theory and there's a lot of people that really want to go back and I completely understand why, but I realized that it's like, you can try to unlearn colonialism or that colonial force that has like really suppressed a lot of your teachings or things like that. The true key is to understand that it will always come from self. Like the whether we say recreating, we're just creating. It could have been like somebody out fishing that all of a sudden like came up with a song and then that song was like sung by everybody. And that's how we create those moments of like of song. So maybe this isn't so old, but like it could also be new. I don't know. Yeah. So I think about a lot. I wanted to ask you about something else I heard you say at the panel discussion at BACA, mm. where you were speaking about uh, abundance yeah. and uh, instead of having an, an idea of scarcity, uh, having a kind of ethic of abundance. Yeah. I think that's like part of it, like in my practice, because I use the, the lens of photography quite a bit, um, there is a whole history uh, of a power play that really that exists with, but I think in general artists, the one who's doing the creating that's putting the idea out there has a lot of control because it is their voice. It is like what they want to put out there. Um, but because I work with lots of people, lots of different types of individuals, um, their autonomy is super important to me. So. Even in my practice, like when I'm, when I'm thinking about abundance, you know, rather than scarcity, it is that act of like reminding myself that I need to, that, you know, um, one's image is really important. Um, when we think about things like visual sovereignty, there's a lot of abundance that exists in there because I'm trying to like look at the ways in which artists would have, you know, asked individuals to pose for them. How much of the control do they have and how they're displayed and how do I make them look? What image do I choose? A lot of that, I, I try the best that I possibly can to involve them in those processes. So like the big one series where I have individual, like the one that was from the cover of Canadian art and uh, like, yeah, once again, a year ago um, with the antlers and the oiled up bodies and like the, they're topless, but you don't actually know what gender or sexuality they are. They're just there. <laughs> they're just in like, you know, with the background of their color, it's like other areola color, I should specifically say, it's very important. Those images are not online. I ask people not to take photographs of them. I am very much like interested in those individuals. I think that one, that series taught me a lot because I've had a lot of people wanting to come to me to, like I have a dealer in Ottawa, PDA projects, and we've had a lot of conversations about that because that work will just like never be sold. Like, unless I ask that individual and I'm like, this is what's going to, do you consent to that? And then how much of a cut do you want? Because that's like super important. If we're gonna like work within a capitalist sort of society where we have to like make livings or like to exchange something, they need to be involved in the whole process of that. So I don't have contracts. <laughs> I just, and I'm sure a lot of like lawyer type folks or like people that are like, oh my God, what, you don't have a contract? No, I don't have contracts with any of those individuals. There's 60 people involved in that. And I will reach out to them every time that I wanna show their image you know, it, it's all about time and patience then for me. It's about like doing that work to create safety. And that's like what abundance looks like for me. It looks like I am not closing you out of that conversation. Once you take a photo with me, that's not the end. Like you, I will continue this conversation with you and your image may go to other galleries if you say so. I am constantly asking for consent all the time. And it's not that exhausting actually. Like once you start that practice, it just becomes part of it. So it's really yeah. about this ongoing process of building and maintaining trust. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, trust takes time. Yes, 
I've been doing that work since like 2011. Like it's, it's, and it's ongoing because there's always new things. Even though it's the same formula, there's new things to uncover always with like who, depending on who you work with and working with others has just taught me so much about collaboration, about consent, about the ways in which we hold relations. And like, if you're not willing to do that work, then it doesn't really mean anything. I don't know. That, like, what are you doing then? Like, what are you doing all of this for? My relations are super important. And like, yeah, and I try my best. We all, we all make mistakes. And that's like the part, the failure is part of it. The doubt, the wondering if you're doing things right. But if you're willing to like listen and be open, like how we hope that people, when we're talking to them, you know, when we bring up critique or we bring that up, that's what I found is like the most rewarding is that when I'm willing to listen um, and receive, then that's when the shifts can happen. And it's like, it's up to me to do that work, right? And I think that's like where some people are just like not ready to do that work. But you know, you can just like always hope. That's a nice place to end. Yeah. Hey, Chimiwich. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Dana Danger and Jacob Wren. Criticism and Conversation is a series by Momus the Podcast, and it's produced and hosted by myself and Lauren Wetmore. This episode is edited by Jacob Irish, features original music by Kyle McRae, and production assistance by Mitra Shreeram. It's brought to you with the help of the Canada Council for the Arts New Chapter Grant and is syndicated by NTS Radio.